Hello and welcome to the Meditation Conversation, the podcast to support your spiritual revolution. I'm your host, Kara Goodwin, and today I'm joined by Dr. Fred Moss. Dr. Fred is a recovering, retired psychiatrist with over 40 experience in mental health across various roles. He's known as the Undoctor, and he's a transformational restorative coach on a mission to empower his clients by undiagnosing, unmedicating, and undoctrinating their lives, allowing them to reclaim their true selves. This is such a thought-provoking episode. I was so captivated listening to Dr. Fred talk about the reasons he was compelled to go against his conventional, decades-long professional career as a psychiatrist when he realized that all the prescribing he was doing was out of alignment with his soul. He gives fascinating insights about why the system the patient is in depends on them continuing to have their diagnosis, and how the system is designed to rush people onto medication but not to graduate out of them, and how we don't really second-guess starting a medication, but have been programmed to be dependent on them and thus overly cautious about coming off of medication. Dr. Fred has so many resources available to help people take control over their lives when it comes to their mental health, so immerse yourself in this episode, and if you feel a resonance with what he's saying, check out his work and see if he can help you become indoctrinated too. And quickly before we get started, I want to give a quick shout out to a podcasting service that I just absolutely love. People contact me all the time about starting their own podcast, and I always point them to Zencaster to record high quality audio and video. I remember a couple of years ago listening to one of my own episodes in my car, and I was really embarrassed by the quality of the audio. I dropped everything and started searching how to get crisper audio for my recordings, and so began my journey with Zencaster. Zencaster is so easy and gives you studio quality sound and up to 4K video with your guests. Go to Zencaster.com forward slash pricing and use my code meditation to get 30% off your first month of any Zencaster paid plan. I want you to have the same easy experiences I do for all my podcasting content needs. It's time to share your story. And now, enjoy this episode. So welcome, Dr. Fred. I'm really excited to talk to you today. Yeah, thanks, Kara. It's really great to be here. The honor and pleasure is mine. Thanks for having me as a guest. So I, I can't wait to hear about the undoctoring. Can you talk a little bit about your history and what led you to this more unconventional way that you help people today? Sure. Yeah. So I was born into a world that was in a fair amount of chaos, and I was born to be a communicator. So I had two older brothers, 10 and 14 years older than me, who were teenagers when I was born. And uh, my parents and them were in a fair amount of chaos and disarray when I was born. And I was called on to bring a new level of joy and communication into the family. So I hit the time clock right when I arrived. And I've been enchanted with communication ever since. And so the idea was early on that I would bring joy or pleasure through laughing or through reciting advanced reading or math or whatever kind of precocious things that I was taught how to do as a child. And I could lighten up a room. And the idea, I would watch people speak to each other and knew that communication was the thing. I don't know that I knew the word communication, but I knew that 
contacting and being with each other was where all of human activity took place. And I think we all learned that when we were children. Through elementary school, I expected to learn how to be a really great communicator. But in school, what I learned was that they didn't really want me to communicate. They wanted me to follow the rules, say what the teacher says, speak when I'm spoken to, and those kind of things. Not really the grounds for an open discord. discourse. And so the idea then was, well, maybe junior high, the bigger kids. Somewhere along the line, people must learn how to communicate. And of course, in junior high, it got worse. And then in high school, it got worse again. So I decided that in college, that's where I would finally get my education. And I went to the University of Michigan, hoping to really get, there was all sorts of open conversations supposedly going on about war protests and drugs and sex and all the things that big kids talked about. And I was hoping that I would learn how to do that there. But even in the classrooms in Ann Arbor, it was not a place to learn how to so I eventually dropped out of school and, and came across the country to Berkeley, California to find myself, which I did do, but it was non-sustainable. And I eventually was convinced to go back to school to learn how, computers, which was the new and up-and-coming science. And I went back, and the only computer in all of Michigan was at the University of Michigan. And I tried to be a computer person, but that didn't work either. So I dropped out again. And uh, when I came home, I told my mom that I would never go back to school for any reason. She said, that's fine, but you have to get a job then. And she got me an application at a state mental health facility for adolescent boys and out there in Northwest Detroit. And I began to work and here I was finally getting paid to communicate. The idea was that when I communicated with these kids, seven years, my junior, they would get better, but I would get better too in the healing process of communicating and connecting with another human. And I could see that's where the real healing took place. I knew that when I was a child, but I especially knew that when I over there at Fairlawn Center. And eventually, I, the thing I hated most about that job was psychiatry. Psychiatry treated those kids more or less like commodities. We would call the psychiatrist when Timmy and Tony got in a fight or Jimmy was up too late. He would come down and interview the child for just a minute and then interview us and then write something in the chart. And then we'd have to go retrieve the child, hold them down and fill them through full of some injectable antipsychotic, anti-anxiety combination cocktail. Oh, and wow. if he was in a stupor for the next day and a half, we would call that a success. Now, I saw that you were kind of alarmed by that, but you should know that's still going on in nearly every hospital in the country every day. I mean, it's happened many times already this morning in the psychiatric hospitals. Well, this was so barbaric and so unacceptable to me. And I really knew that communication was what was going to cure Timmy or Tony or Jimmy. I went into the field. My brother was already a psychiatrist. I went into the field in order to re-inject communication as the key feature for, it was clear to me and I think clear to most of us that connection is what actually heals people. When I went into the field changed while I was in training and Prozac was introduced in 1987 and Prozac altered the landscape of psychiatry forever and forever and ever by creating something called biological psychiatry or the notion of a chemical imbalance when we don't feel well. So we learned that if it was depression, maybe it was like serotonin or if there was anxiety, there was maybe, you know, something up benzodiazepine, like a GABA receptor might take care of. And we began to medicate things during that time when med the medication revolution really took place from those years forward. So there I was 
discharged from my residency and my internship. Because you did go back to school in the end. I did. I went back to school. Did your mom say, I told you? (laughs) Exactly. I went back to school. I went back to school in order to inject communication in. That's the whole thing. Right. Yeah. And by the time I came out of school, I was now a prescriber. That was all that was left for me to do, even though I went in so that I would never have to prescribe or diagnose. But, you know, those were the sunken costs. That's what I learned how to do. And over the next 30 years, I saw approximately 40,000 patients and wrote over 100,000 prescriptions during that time. Each of them was not aligned with my core self. So they all heard. They all had a little bit of, a little or a lot of soul sacrifice associated with And eventually really got to the point where I could not live with that level of duplicity. So I started to do something fairly radical in 2006. And that was, I started to take people off of medicine. I took my low risk patients off of medicine and sure enough, they got better, way better, reliably better. And in many cases, their original diagnosis actually disappeared. Really? Yeah. And then I kept doing that and did it with my grander, greater part of my practice. And even their diagnoses often disappeared. Now, there are several reasons to keep a diagnosis, and sometimes the system isn't really ready for the identified patient to get better, for instance. And so they'll call on me. We liked him better when he was medicated. Now, wait, that's really interesting. Can you say that again? The system about the system is not ready for the person to not have that diagnosis. Exactly. The diagnosis fills an important role in the system. So the identified patient often is a really key place to be able to like funnel all the concerns the family is having or the system is having about themselves, et cetera, that if it wasn't for my sick sister, we would be okay. Or if it like there's a lightning rod of a patient in many systems that actually keeps the patient fully entrenched and being psychopathological. Now that's fascinating. I feel like you've probably said this a a million times and you're, and it's not, like it it doesn't hit you the way that it might be no, hitting people not. right now. <laughs> so I don't want to like speed on by that because yeah. that's really, really important. So you're talking about <laughs> the, the family, the people who have the relationship with the person. Identified patient. Yeah. The identified patient. They're relying on this diagnosis so that they can explain why they have a Why their lives relationship. don't work. That's right. Exactly. Right. And then also... When you talk more about like a system, what other parts of that pa- that presumed patients, who else is benefiting from Yeah, that? so there's extended systems as well. There's other caregiving si- systems. There's the multiple systems that really count on that tire remaining flat. It's mm-hmm. really important that the tire remains flat because that's how we learned to drive was with a flat tire. And so if we if fill up the air in a flat tire in a car that's had a flat tire for a long time, the regular driver of that car will not know how to drive and will immediately drive into a ditch because he'll be compensating for the flat tire that no longer exists. Mm-hmm. So that's really common in the world of systems as well, in which there's an identified client, identified patient, usually a, a daughter or a son, but it can be a mom or dad who's got the psychiatric diagnosis and the psychiatric stigma, the psychiatric label, and is carrying the load for the whole family. And so there's a real, like when people finally started to get better, if I removed their medicine and they started speaking their real truth, that's the last thing that people really wanted to hear in many cases, because they had been watching the whole time and they were actually saying a truth that had been, that had been 
subdued over the years. Yeah, and suppressed over the years. Exactly. Hmm. Wow. There is a lot there. Yeah, there's a lot there. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Well, thank you for taking us through your history. Well, that's only to 2006. And now I did. Oh, right. The whole idea in 2006 was I began to do that. And um, I started taking off most of my patients off of their medicine. And many, most of them got way better. And then my practice closed. And I started going around the country and around the world as a traveling physician, often carrying the same level of philosophy, but not always with the same wherewithal to be able to do it in my part-time or temporary jobs. When I could do it, I had great success. When the administrators would allow me to take people off medicine, people would get way better. But the truth is the system is not built to make people better. The system is built to advance or to perpetuate or to increase or to some cases actually cause the symptoms they're marketed to treat. And that's what keeps people in the system. That's why people line up every morning at every single pharmacy around the country to make sure they get in early to get their pharmaceutical medicine so that they can take them. And they're frankly not doing anything close to what they're told. They're doing, in most cases, they're either perpetuating, increasing, or in some un, some fair amount of cases, they might be actually causing the symptoms that they're marketed to treat. Wow. Yeah. Well, then we start looking at where is the undoctor? Because in in 2016, I started creating a company called Welcome to Humanity. And that's a self-explanatory company, a company that really takes into consideration all of life's ins and outs, all the things that work in life, all the things that don't work in life, all the pleasures in life, all the miseries in life, and include that in being part of what it means for be, having a full life. And really, when we can embrace all of that and not see ourselves as sick, that's when we get a full life. Actually acknowledging that misery is part of it, that discomfort is part of it, that being uncomfortable is part of the beauty of being human. And we all, Buddha knew that. Everyone knows that. There's nobody who's ever written about, like, there's nobody, never been anybody who's lived like a fully comfortable life. That's just not happened. So the idea is that as we move forward, the undoctor was a moniker I received a few years ago from a friend of mine, because ultimately it isn't the medicines that are causing the problems. It's the choice to take medicines because nobody's holding down any of these clients. Nobody's holding down any of these residents or patients. They're taking the medicine because they actually believe there's something wrong with them that needs to be fixed or altered. And the whole idea that I really like to put put people into perspective is that maybe there's nothing that needs to be altered. Maybe what's really here is just being crazy in a crazy world makes sense. Being uncomfortable in a world (laughs) that is really depressing makes sense. Being anxious about a future that is so unpredictable makes sense. It's okay to have these human responses, even if they're deeply and highly uncomfortable. Okay. Well, so that sounds like it's dealing more with like depression or anxiety. I wonder about things like narcissists or people who are really harming other people through the relationships that they have where I can think of people who not I don't know what the what medicine they would be on in that kind of case and I don't know how much narcissists in particular seek help but from like a relational standpoint I think of something like a a psychopath or something who is like Mm -hmm. really trying to harm people I don't know is it is there kind of a cutoff where it's like if it's more anxiety and depression and things like that, then it's 
easier to treat without medicine or I don't know. Well, we don't have medicine for the so-called narcissistic or any of the personality disorders. We never Mm. pretended to have medicine for that. And people use that word fairly freely. This narcissist word is a word that's being thrown around these days. So no one really knows exactly what the other person is saying when they use the word narcissist. Different Mm. people have different ideas of what a narcissist is, and you can look it up on the internet and get the exact list you want to identify the person that you're calling a narcissist. Again, it's and people who do direct harm to people because that's what they enjoy doing is part of the group of people that are called humans. There are people out there who are doing harm for whatever reason. Normally, it's harmed people who are doing harm. Normally. And so one of the things we can really get is that people really more or less want to be listened to. They want to be heard for who they are. They want to be able to self-express and be understood for who they are, including those people who are who appear to be harming people without any second guessing. Like those people also just want to be heard and understood for who they are as a person. And they want to make an impact. Almost everyone wants to make an impact ultimately and make the world a better place. Some people see that as being done in various ways that other people think is counterproductive. And that leads to these diagnoses like us versus them. We tend to then label somebody as having a condition if it's outside our range of what we think our human boundaries should be. So we give people these diagnoses of psychopath or narcissism or something like that, identifying them as being outside the range of acceptable. And then we call them abnormal as if we are normal. We think we have an understanding or a definition of what normal is, but no one's ever come up with anything good like that. So since we don't know what normal is, I don't know how we have the audacity to speak to what's abnormal. Mm, Yeah. Yeah, I guess that's a good point. I just think of people I know in my world who are trying to adapt, like they've realized they've been manipulated for years, for example by a parent, by a spouse or something, and they're trying to like reconcile, how did I let this happen for so long? And then they're noticing there are things like different degrees of narcissism or things like that, that is, that has been kind of helping them to connect some dots as they realize that, oh, there's a pattern that certain people have that is recognizable across different parts of the population. I exactly. Suppose. Yeah. I mean, some people really pay the notion of narcissism is really paying more attention to, to my wants than anyone else's wants and my my physical needs or my ego needs or whatever. And we all have that. That's why we despise the narcissist because we're all narcissistic underneath it all. Mm-hmm. So we think that we have compensated so that we're no longer nar- we're no longer just feeding our own wants and needs. We're actually trying to be of service and being good for other people and being good people. And But the people we despise who are then eventually get labeled as narcissists is a function of who we are as well. And that's why we can relate so well to despising and rejecting that group of people. Hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting because, I mean, when people, for instance, like have sidestepped their own they've realized that for years they've just put what they want on a shelf in order to accommodate what they guess that the other person wants. And then that's not the right thing and so forth. It does kind of come across as like, wait, I'm willing to sacrifice what I want all the time. And yet it's never enough and there's nothing coming back. Yeah. 
There's a lot you know. of people. It sounds like you've had your own personal experience with this group of people here and there every so often. It's really more that I have different people. I've been like, I've, of course, I've seen it. Yes. And I've been on the other side of it. But luckily, it's not. I don't have it intimately in my life, but I do see it. And it's like, oh, my goodness, this is like you start to hear the stories that come out. And it's pretty surprising. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the indoctrination as well is really interesting because it's like you were recognizing it even from a young age of yeah. like, okay, this is what I feel like I should be learning from my human experience and going to school and learning this. And okay, it's I'm not finding it here. And even all the way up through college and then eventually going, no, this is not giving me what I need. I'm trying to be put into a system that's trying to mold me into what it wants me to be and that's not working but then through your desire to help timmy and tommy and jimmy and yeah. so forth it was like okay i guess i have to go through and be a product of the system exactly and so how what was the experience of like undock when you've become so entrenched in a system yeah. The extracting yourself. Can you share a little bit about that? It had to have been really hard. That's a really good question. And some really great intersections get uh, tweaked here as I recall them. But in 2006, when I began to take people off medicine and then tell my peers about it, they were like stunned. It's like the one thing that a doctor didn't have access to was taking people off of medicine, which really was stunning in its own right. The idea was that there's an implicit agreement with our clients that let's just try this medicine. And with that, the client agrees, assuming that if they don't work, we'll just remove them. But we right. don't remove. We only add, increase, or change in medicines. We don't remove them. If they, things get worse, we might add, add a different medicine or increase the dose or change to a different medicine. And I really saw that sometimes we might decrease the, the actual uh, dose here and there. But never do we actually eliminate the medicines as a, re as a function of things getting worse because we things got worse. And so we need to respond by giving some form of medicine. The whole philosophy there was so strange. And I wanted, when I first figured it out, that the medicines were actually advancing or increasing or changing or contributing to and perpetuating, if not causing the symptoms, I wanted to scream that from the mountaintops. I wanted to tell everybody, I'll tell all my friends, tell everybody. But being violent about it didn't make any good sense and didn't really land on the ears that needed to hear it. So over time, I've learned how to really quell it and be able to speak to it in a more natural way, like I'm doing here today. The idea is I have no animosity necessarily against the medicines or big pharma or anything like that. They're allowed to create what they want. It's like being angry at the wet rat poison to me. It's like... Mm. They just make rat poison. That's all. Use it to kill rats and it's good. And with the same thing here, it's only an inert substance that they're making, but it's not their problem that everybody and their grandma wants to call themselves bad and wrong and fixable and diseased and affected and defective. So the idea really that I'd like to put forward is it's not about the medicines. It's about recognizing or being wanting or even needing to have a diagnosis to explain the things in our life that we would otherwise like to give up. It's like things in our lives were that aren't working, that we no longer can need to, we would rather not take responsibility for that. Mm. Um, so that's more or less what the 
purposes of many people who take on a diagnosis. They relinquish their responsibility for the parts of their life that aren't working very well. Now, for your listeners who are really happy with their diagnoses and are happy with their treatment and their medicines, this conversation isn't directly for them. If you have found something in your world that actually explains why you're doing what you're doing and you're happy with it and you have your label or you have your condition and you're getting a proper treatment and medicine or and or medicine and it's working for you, then please continue to do that because that's a small subset of humans who have found something that's working. If you found something that's working, more power to you. Keep doing it. This is for the hundreds of millions of people who aren't there. And there are hundreds of millions of people who've been diagnosed or misdiagnosed or underdiagnosed or overdiagnosed who feel like they're taking medicines that aren't making them better and, and they're in treatments that don't make any sense. They have no relationship with their doctor, the one who's there to heal them. And th- those people are really learning that what they're doing for their imbalance, if you will, not necessarily a chemical imbalance, by the way, but for their imbalance isn't really working. It isn't serving them. So that group of people is who I'm really speaking to here. And so that's where you get to undiagnosing. Undiagnosing as a function of unmedicated. Just taking away medicine to somebody who still thinks that they're sick will only have them seeking to what else do I have to take now since I'm still sick. So when you start, right? Oh, okay. That is really interesting. Okay. The penny just dropped. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. Okay. So it's the identification with that diagnosis. So even if you stop medicating them, then they're still going to be trying to figure out, okay, is there a supplement? Is there an herb? Is there right. a whatever? What else can I take? Yeah. But it's making peace with the uniqueness of who we are. Exactly. Exactly. Making peace with the uniqueness of who we are and really seeing that each and every one of us are splendid, divine creatures of God, really. And I'm not speaking necessarily from a religious perspective. I'm mm-hmm. really just saying that We came here and we're experiencing life exactly as we are because that's who we are. And maybe there's nothing inherently wrong with us that needs fixing or changing. So that's the the idea of medicine, like therapy, talk therapy, that seemed to be, that's like seems the way that the protocol goes is that talk therapy is like surface oriented. And when that doesn't work, when psychologist or social worker or counselor finally gives up, then they punt it to the psychiatrist and we're supposed to go in there and do some sort of rip-roaring, like, engine change or something with a, with a medicine <laughs> whole new base. set of tires. Yeah, a whole new <laughs> yeah. set. And that doesn't work either. It just simply doesn't work. It makes things worse. And it regularly makes things worse. And if we were really to look at that, we would see that going down that avenue, even though it seems like it's the last resort, is, la- is similar to, like, throwing your toaster out of an eight-story window to see when, once you get tired of trying to fix it. This is fascinating. So I I wonder too about like parents who have children who are in school, because I also have friends who, you know, and I have children and there's a certain way that I guess schools expect children to behave, to learn, to interact and so forth. And I have a friend, for example, who they had their child on anti-anxiety medication, and that was kind of based on what the school wanted. And they were open. They want the best for their child. 
And then they made the decision that like, well, let's see what happens if we take them off. And, and then things come to the surface and there are pluses and minuses, but they kind of feel like the school is again, sort of like, well, what happened to the medication? Should he be on medication again and so forth? So there's this sort of like that indoctrination that you talk about, but I think it's it's one thing for us to do that through like what we want for ourselves. And then there's this other additional dimension that when you're trying to make the best choice for your child, I don't know if you have any. If oh, yeah, I'm, I plan to say about that, of course. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> yeah. This, the whole idea of students or children or parents of children who are being told by the school that their kids aren't listening or aren't able to complete tasks or aren't able to pay attention or are seemingly having a mood disturbance of some sort, that they're anxious or they're depressed. Oftentimes, it's the school also working to get, like the school isn't necessarily, as we already discussed even back in my day, that the school isn't necessarily fostering open discourse with their children and taking advantage of their skill sets, et cetera, allowing them to explore, allowing them to learn, allowing them to ask all the questions they have, allowing. That's not how it's going. They're wanting little Johnny to sit in his chair and stare at the chalkboard or stare at the front of the room. And then be able to regurgitate what the teacher said. And if he doesn't do that, then there's something wrong with Johnny, rather than realizing that there might be some inherent flaws in the whole school system. Now, this is a very simplistic way of looking at a very complicated issue, because when parents get told that Johnny isn't doing well in school, the parents are necessarily like interested in doing whatever they can to help Johnny. And the school says uh, the school is kind of in cahoots, if you will, with the, the medical team. That if they get put on Ritalin or they get put on Xanax or they get put on Seroquel or whatever their medicine is of choice, that they have experience that kids do well. Then what ends up happening is that the children get they get quelled. You know, they their um, symptoms might disappear for the small points of being, but ultimately what's happening is that their symptoms are being pushed down and will come out in other areas, in between doses or later at night, or sometimes if the symptoms are actually being advanced or perpetuated, or in some cases caused by the drugs that are marked to treat them, then we get all sorts of issues. So that the anxiety medicines cause an actual increase in panic attacks, or the ADHD medicines cause an actual increase in inattentiveness. And this is a really important issue to take in mind, is that these medicines don't do what they're supposed to do. Well, except if you realize that what the medicines do, maybe they do do what they're supposed to do because what they're supposed to do is they're made to sell more of themselves. And so the, if you can keep people on medicine, that's a good plan for the medicine company, of course. Mm, yeah, that's true. It is. It's so complicated, isn't it? It's so yeah, complex, okay. complex. Yeah. Well, we talked about children, and I'm just wondering it the lens of this in the maybe misdiagnosis, mis mistreatment, mistreatment for a different generation. Right. Yeah, it goes on for everybody. I mean, we're all being mistreated in many ways. If we walk into the the standard default psychiatric industrial complex, we're going to get you know if you go to a if you go to a barbershop shop enough times, you're going to get a haircut. And, you know, in a psychiatry world, 
When you walk in to get a psychiatric evaluation, you're going to walk out with a diagnosis. In fact, they can't even let you out without one. Really? They won't get, they won't get paid if they don't. If you write oh, no diagnosis, no third party payer will ever pay you. Oh, wow. So, so you are compelled as a psychiatrist to diagnose every single person who comes into your office. And yes, you will get a diagnosis and that diagnosis will stay on your record forever, no matter what. Some are maybe more benign than others, but you will get a diagnosis. And the diagnosis is a, it's a label that then you get to see yourself as. You say, that's not me, honey. That's my bipolar type two acting up. Or sorry, I didn't complete the task, boss, but I got a adult ADD. Or sorry, I didn't do so well at the party last night. I got social anxiety or whatever I decide. So we're given these labels and they do serve a purpose because uh, like we talked before, they relinquish the responsibility that I might have over the parts of my life that maybe I'm not so proud of. Hmm. Yeah, that's fascinating. Well, when we talk about, when you talk about taking people off of medication, if there's anybody listening who's like stunned and on some medication, then they're like, yeah. I need to get off of this. Is it something that there's a protocol for coming off, depending on how long, how much they've been yeah, taking. Yeah, it's funny. Like People are way more worried about coming off than they were about going on. It's really interesting. Like really? we're asking you to put toxins in your body. You're like, yes, please give them to me. And then we're asking you to stop putting toxins in your body. Like, hold on a minute. I don't know how long is it going to take? Is it going to be uncomfortable? Am I going to be go through That's withdrawal? That's a great point. Yeah. yeah. We don't, we're not even worried in a second about whether or not we're putting chemicals in our body that we do not do proper research. We just assume it's all done. And then when we, I say, like, if I was to tell you, and not that this is true, but if I was to say that medicine of yours has rat poison in it, if I was to tell you that, <clears throat> And then I want you to wean it over the next six months. You'd be like, I'm not weaning shit. Yeah. If it's got rat poison in it, I'm stopping today. So the whole idea of weaning is also an industrial phenomenon. Hmm. The idea is that if they can really stretch out the weaning over a long period of time, you will have an incident along the way where you decide that didn't happen before you started weaning. And therefore, you should hurry on back to your old dose. Really? Yeah. That's my understanding of it. I don't think anybody, mm -hmm. it's not written anywhere, I'm sure, in the weaning process. Right. But, but so, if I slip on a banana peel or I run over my cat in the driveway, I'll say, hey, I wasn't doing that before I started weaning on my medicine. And so, therefore, here I am super anxious because I just ran over my cat. And that's the same anxiety I felt before. And the only way I can manage that is hike up my medicine. So when you help, when you advise people to come off of their medication, do you just have it be a, just stop? So stop. some people like, they use the word, like you were probably thinking about using the word cold turkey and mm -hmm. cold turkey. There's nothing attractive about cold turkey and there's nothing attractive. Like just stop. Mm -hmm. That makes it look like it's really a heroic deed. It's not a heroic deed in most cases. And let's keep in mind. I'm not taking people off of medicine who still believe they're sick. Mm -hmm. Why would I do that? They're just going to be jamming on me for their next medicine. Mm -hmm. The idea is to really get into the mindset and get people to realize that maybe they're not sick in the first place. There's two groups of people. There's the people who are considering coming into the medical complex who think there might be something wrong with them and they're wondering whether they should go get their psychiatric evaluation. That's an easier group for me to work with because they haven't actually busted through yet. 
the group that has already started taking medicine, at least for some period of time, has decided that they are sick enough to put toxins in their body every single morning. And that group is much harder to convince that they weren't sick in the first place because they've already bought the whole thing hook, line, and sinker to begin with. That's a very difficult group, and it really requires a massive amount of alignment. That group, what I find is, and if any of your listeners are in that group, I hope they understand, that group is like, yeah, there's something wrong with me. I mean, how many doctors have to tell me that I've got bipolar disorder? How many doctors have to tell me that I've got schizoaffective disorder? I've got that condition, and therefore, of course, I need something. I hate my medicine, but since I have a condition, I need something. What are you going to replace my medicine with? Do you have some herbs, or do you have some special concoctions, or some certain practices I'm supposed to do? They're willing to do that, but only because they are unwilling to relinquish the notion that they might not have been truly sick in the first place. Mm. That's really, that's really fascinating. You come, it comes back to that whole identification piece. Right. Exactly. Well, there, there is so much in this conversation. It has been so rich and, and fascinating. I thank you so much. Can you tell people how they can find out more about you? Well, I know that you're normally this conversation goes into meditation and mindfulness and nutrition, multiple ways to just kind of hold still and capture yourself. So it's important to really understand that part of the treatment here is in the world of prevention. And part of the prevention is by getting, as meditation often suggests, by getting your world, getting your unique capacity to view the world as you do. When you can get out over yourself and you can get out hovering over yourself or really get an access to who is going through the actions? Who is this me that's going through the actions I'm going through every single day is falling for whatever nonsense illusions that I'm falling for every day. Then we have a new access to keep treating ourselves with the love and compassion and acceptance and forgiveness that we need to. So I really support meditation as being not only preventative, but in some ways curative of any notion that there's anything wrong with us. We start really getting our unique space in the world and what we do and how we think and what we say and how all those things play a role. So the best way to get a hold of me, if you want to really speak to this, it would be to go to my 360 site, which is drfred360.com. And from there, you could see everything I've done. You can see there's all sorts of cool freebies there. My books are in there. You can download free PDFs of my books. I have two of them. And my courses are in there, Healing the Healer and uh, the True Voice course, where I walk people into finding their true voice, rediscovering their true voice, and actually bringing it forth through podcasting as a primary template. I think it's a great space to actually speak our truth. And then you can get all my social media links there. And I invite people to contact me by going to the texting area and just write your name and your email, your full email, so that I can email you back. And you can put that in when you get contact, you contact and then text and write your name and your email. That can be very helpful and moving along so I can keep you in track of what I'm up to. Or there's an opportunity, of course, to set up a discovery call. There's a couple of different buttons on that site where I'll give away your audience. I'll give away a free discovery call so that we can talk about whether there's a good fit with me moving together to work with your clients who either want to come off page uh, medicine and want to lose their diagnosis or don't really believe they have one in the first place and just want reinforcement along those lines. That's beautiful. Well, thank you so much for all the work you're doing, Dr. Fred, to help people, the undoctor Fred, 
to yeah. help people become unindoctrinated and or undoctrinated. Undoctrinated, yeah. And undiagnosed, and it's really beautiful and profound. So thank, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I learned it when I was three, so it's back again. I love it. It's all yeah. full circle, 360, right? Yeah, exactly. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you, Kara. It's been a pleasure. Let me know if there's anything I can do to help you as well. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I'd love to ask you for one quick favor, and that's to share this episode with one person who you think will benefit from it. Let them know you're thinking about them by sharing this episode with them right now. Thank you, and I look forward to the next meditation conversation.